you're looking for one of the most beautiful and playable custom acoustics on the planet, look no further than Ed Rice at Toeir Guitars. Ed is a true artist, transforming exotic woods into magnificent, sweet-sounding instruments. Go to toeirguitars.us, that's T-O-I-R-G-U-I-T-A-R-S.us, and contact Ed today. Hey everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchor.fm slash Recording, hit the support button, 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. recording podcast episode 142 what's up neil welcome to the early show yeah. how you doing buddy our earliest podcast ever you should have just spent the night here last night no man shit. <laughs> so you, you left about you left less than 12 hours ago yeah 11 hours ago yeah man yeah we are back back we've got a great guest we've got dan zlotnik welcome dan Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Did guys. he say that right? Oh, it was perfect. Ah, Absolutely perfect. Right. I've gotten all all sorts of pronunciations, so that was <laughs> impressive, especially at eight thirty in the morning. It's not very often that you pronounce a Z and an A all together. But the crazy thing was, I wasn't even the last person to be called at graduation. There was a Zmoidens. Z M right behind me. You would think. You would think. Yeah. Amazing. I bet the first time that happened, you were like, what? When yeah. teacher's crawling rolls or somebody behind me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Man, we're glad you could be here. You uh you got a busy couple of days here. Thank you. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been on a little run. I'm I'm from New York, so I've been trying to make my way out here. And then eventually, I'm actually, I'm not even wake, making my way back. I'm making my way to Richmond where my wife's cousin is getting married. <laughs> so I'm touring to a wedding, essentially. I've got, <laughs> I got my okay. suits packed in the car. Where, where it's, a, it's been a fun trip, though. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, well, Dan, we uh, don't worry about us. We realize it's 8.30 a.m., but we always have a little bourbon with the podcast. <laughs> this and one hurts, but I'm ready. I brought out, I was trying to think, what is the most mild Great breakfast bourbon I could think of, and I thought Basil Hayden. As soon as I saw the bottle, I knew what your idea was, and I thought, thank you, Brad. <laughs> Cheers, Neil. Cheers, buddy. Let's Cheers, Dan. Cheers to you guys. Drink, baby. And All I've right. got, Dan's got water and black coffee. I've got black coffee, water, and bourbon. Dude, that's perfect, actually. Breakfast and that's a good. That's yeah. a good little sip. Huh? That is good. That's not bad, dude. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to start this as like a, a, that would a be ritual. Great with bacon and eggs. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, the bourbon version of a Bloody Mary, I guess? Yeah. Oh, dude, so uh, Biscuit Belly, which just closed, had, had a boozy bird. And with the boozy bird, you get a shot of bourbon. <laughs> so, I mean, you go there at 7.30, 8 a.m. What is it? Is it a sandwich or what it's is a, it? It's a chicken biscuit. With maple uh, syrup on it. And then for some reason, it's Ooh. like, well, we're in Kentucky. Here's some bourbon for your breakfast. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. it can't go wrong. I didn't yeah. realize, you know, I never had it. but uh, I bet it wasn't Basil Hayden. I bet it wasn't Basil Hayden. It was probably, probably. like Kentucky Tavern. <laughs> <laughs> these are the things I love learning on tour. I'm like, yeah. I got to find these spots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. So you've... Uh, and we do appreciate you. We know you came from playing last night. You got here in Louisville. You're kind of just running through until you're out of town. So a big thank you from us for you to take the time to, to you know, make this a stop. Really oh, appreciate it's, it. It's my pleasure. I just, I, I love meeting people. And this is, you know, I, I, you were suggested to me by Nicholas Johnson in Cincinnati. Yeah. And oh, when I told my friend Scott Smith that I'm staying with hey. here in Louisville, I was like, you know, the, he was like, these are, these are good people. So I'm, right. I'm happy to make this happen. I, I thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. Awesome, man. You were with Scott yesterday. You all did a show together. Yeah, we did yeah. a show in uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, uh, a house concert, and uh, it was great. We had probably 30 to 40 people, quiet as a mouse. I was going to say, list people the, that in, are listening, in, right? In, yeah, in the, set up in the living room. We had a couple lights. It was just, 
It was perfect. There was yeah. a giant charcuterie table. Like there was no <sighs> plates or anything. They just put some paper down and threw everything on there. It was just, it was a great night. Oh, cool. Yeah. One of those ones where, you know, you have somebody laying under the food and you take the food off them. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't gotten quite to that level oh, yet. Okay. But, yeah. but he was a nice man for doing that. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, man, speaking of like, you know, meeting people, one thing we love to do is, is, meet people and listen to their music. And I've got to say, you know, we both just kind of talked about a oh, few man. of the things that we've heard this morning. And what I, what I think of is... Almost you, brought me to tears at 8.30 a.m. I'm telling you, man, you, you paint you. such a vivid picture. Um, Thank you. With your words. And, and uh, we love finding stuff that we love. And I think both of us just been like, man, yeah. this is some really, really good, good writing. I really appreciate that. Thank you so yeah, much. Man. Before we get into those songs, though, why don't you start us off? Take us back to uh, early childhood, all the way, uh, all the way back as far as you can remember, and just talk about some of your early memories of music. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, if there's like a moment in time or something, you know, when did you realize, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make music a huge part of my life? Yeah. So this is a, it's kind of a crazy story. Um, I guess not, maybe not that crazy. I shouldn't set it up like that. <laughs> I guess the people listening will decide. Are high. Yeah, like this is going to be, you know, <laughs> lightning strikes. And, um, but my parents were musicians, my, not, not professionally, but uh, my dad played guitar in, um, in college. He was in a high school band. My mom could, you know, strum a few chords. So we always had guitars in the house. And it's not a memory of mine, but I, we have home videos of me at two or three years old, kind of climbing all over my dad and, over the guitars and strumming them and saying, yay, Dan. <laughs> try, try to get everybody. So I think the, uh, you know, the addiction to attention was <laughs> there pretty early on. Um, but I, I wanted to be a major league baseball player and I actually got fairly close. I played in college. Um, and then I played independent minor league ball for, for three years. I was out in Colorado, New Mexico, and then in Toronto. And Throughout my whole life, I had been playing guitar. For my 11th birthday, I got my first guitar. And so it was kind of just a hobby for me. And I would use it when I was playing professionally. I would use it to pay for my training, to pay for my my rent. And I had played a song in a bar somewhere. And my mom said, "Who? what song is that? That was, that was great. <laughs> and I said, it was one of my songs. So she said, we're going to pay for some studio time so you can cut some tracks, send them to Nashville, you know, Chris Stapleton should be singing these or, or, or whatever it is. And, um, and so I, I cut these songs and I was still training, still trying to play baseball. And um, it start, I just felt it starting to pull me. And I was, I was playing the gig, these gigs and I was like, man, this is fun. And when I'm playing baseball, half the people there want me to fail. Mm. When I'm playing music, Nobody wants me to fail. And this is, it's just a better feeling. I feel like I'm making people happier. I feel like I'm making myself happier. Um, and around the same time, my wife, who was in the Peace Corps in Guatemala, well, she, she wasn't my wife at the time. Um, she had just come back and we had just started dating. So it was kind of one of those things where I felt like I had been able to put the baseball stuff behind me and move towards music. And I have not looked back on either. I still, I coach baseball. I do private baseball lessons when I'm home. Hmm. And, um, and it's great because now I'm 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 just a kid playing music and playing playing baseball with other kids, and uh, it's just grown every year. And and here I am. I'm like this is this is pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, that's so, awesome. So well, you know I got to talk about baseball yeah. for a little bit. You <laughs> yeah, know? I'm a big Absolutely. baseball guy. I love baseball. I play baseball as well. But um, so tell me a little bit about about what that looked like for you as far as um, getting out of school, going to college. Where'd you Where'd you go play ball? I played at Marist College in okay. Poughkeepsie, New York. And then uh, I transferred for my senior year to the University of Tampa. Oh, cool. And so it was... Weather? Was it, it was the weather? Weather. It was, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't having a great experience at Marist. And I think I kind of said to myself, you know what, if I'm going to... If this is going to be my last year of baseball ever, I'm going to do something different because I want to enjoy it. And I went down there and it was just... It was the environment of you be you, be relaxed, have fun... And we were also winners, which, yeah. which was really, really fun. Um, not to mention you're around all of the play, major league players who are down there for spring training. So you see guys in the field and it Big just, it, it's an inspiring place to play. There's, there's obviously, you know, I'm flying down from New York and on January 2nd 
and I'm outside in shorts and a t-shirt and mm-hmm. <laughs> throwing yeah. them all around. That, that's part <laughs> that of, uh, helps too. So. Yeah, that's part of the the charm of, of Florida and baseball in Florida. Why it's so yeah. bad. But California, those warm spots, man, they play 365. Yeah. Um, was, was part of that year, uh, probably I would say a year of growth and in, in probably ended up more, in one, more than one way. Was, do you think leaving New York and getting out of that comfort zone of being pretty close to home base and going somewhere where it was you against the world and, and, and finding teammates. And do you think a big part of that success was getting out of that comfort zone? I think so. I think one of the biggest things was that I wasn't ready out of high school to do that. And so when I got to Florida and I saw not only that I was able to be away from home and obviously I'm now, I'm used to motel sixes and (laughs) long long bus rides (laughs) and you know, the highway is no stranger. Um, but I think it was being able to get past a very difficult time. Like I, I was just not happy in, in school and I, I was struggling with baseball. I was struggling with performance anxiety and getting past that and being able to get to Florida and say, you know what? I felt like the world was ending here. Obviously it wasn't. It was just baseball. Um, but I was able to get past that. It allowed me to think, okay, even if I have this other crazy dream to be a musician, if it doesn't seem like it's going as perfectly as I expected, I'm still going to be okay. I'm still going to be able to figure this out. There's always going to be something that I can hold on to um, that that's an option for growth, for learning, and for just kind of moving my life forwards. And, and you know, you can kind of look back and go, wow, I really didn't think I was going to make it out of that misery. Yeah. What, what was the difference between the performance anxiety you were feeling with baseball and and how it translates to music? Uh, well, in between, it was a really great therapist. <laughs> that, that certainly <laughs> helped. Um, but yeah, and, 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 going, and seriously going through that on stage and you go, you know what? I've, I've pitched in front of these people and then in front of 800 people and I've, I've failed miserably. And now I'm going to go on stage and, I'm, you know, I'm opening for, I opened for Mark Cohn fairly mm-hmm. early, the, the walking in Memphis guy. And, great song. And, um, go out on stage and I go, everyone here wants me to do well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, you go out and you go, even if I miss a note, even if a string breaks, even if all of this happens, I'm going to be okay because I've already failed miserably. And now here I am and I go, wow, I have a beautiful wife. I've got a, a great group of friends. I've got a supportive family. You know, there's, there's much more to what I'm doing than just my performance in that one moment. I love that. When you, when you said that, when you first mentioned that, you know, in, in, in athletics, 50% of the people yeah, I never want thought you to fail, like that. you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that just kind of really clarifies the perspective, you know, you're operating in, in athletics and then, and then music where you have a hundred percent. But, you know, I was thinking when you talked about performance anxiety, I was thinking that it seems like issues there would be a whole lot, uh, a whole lot more out front as a solo musician, but then you said you were yeah, a, you pitcher. Said he was a pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> right. That makes right. sense. You know, the pitcher right. is the center of attention. And well, not yeah. only center of attention, but you know, the, uh, the pressure is there. And, and in baseball, that is such an individual position. You can make or break what happens, you know? So talk about performance anxiety. That, that makes mm-hmm. a ton of sense. Yeah. Did, uh, did, Playing the stage, were you playing at this time in, in college? Would you get out on stage while you were playing ball in college? In college, I was doing more coffee shop. Okay, mic but you were still things, playing. But I was playing, yes. Now, did you have the same, was it the same type of anxiety pitching as to getting on a stage in a coffee shop and singing a song? That's a good question. I think for my teammates, and I started when I was at Marist College and I was really struggling baseball-wise, it was one of those things where I was like, I can actually show them something that I'm good at now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it was, I had this, this little bit of confidence and it was actually my teammates who encouraged me to do it because they, they would hear me. I think it was because they wanted to get me out of the dorm room. I'm <laughs> 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 trying to do some work here, man. Like <laughs> being kind of loud. Um, but they, they were the ones that said, why don't you go out on the street and, and throw your case open and, and see if you can get some tips and, you know, get some beer money for the weekend. And, and that was, I started getting tips and I was like, you know what, maybe I'll buy a PA system. And then I got a PA system. I started booking gigs in the r- local restaurants and, and that sort of thing. So um, having that 
support of my teammates and go, okay, you know, maybe baseball isn't my identity. It's just something I'm doing. Ah. And so if I'm failing at it, it doesn't mean I'm a bad person and that I'm lazy and that I, you know, I don't work hard or I don't care. It's, it's more of just sometimes it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to. So when, uh, that's, that's interesting that you said, you know, it wasn't your identity because it, it, was it when you were coming up, going through high school, you know, to get, into a college and play ball, you have to have a, a lot of a talent and ability. Um, so was that kind of when people thought about you, they thought this is the baseball player, Dan. Absolutely. Dan, the guy, he's the yeah. man, he's, he's the pitcher. He's the dude that does uh, all the good shit. He was the stud, you know, a guy in little league and then on up. So well, that was a big thing. I mean, was it just, 24-7 baseball and music on the, like, like you kind of talked yeah, about. Yeah, it was so. kind of like, wow, that's the guy that pitched and he's here on the, you know, the high school talent show stage playing Stormy Monday with a <laughs> three-piece <laughs> blues band. Um, and it was one of those things I remember like you know, maybe 12, 13 years old, I would come home from baseball tournaments or games and I would sit on the computer and this was the very early days of ultimateguitar.com where you could search for any song and learn how to play it. Yeah. And I would just sit there and go, okay, tonight I'm learning the Freebird solo or tonight uh, I'm learning Heartbreaker by Led Zeppelin. And I remember my parents coming into the basement in our little computer room and saying, Dan, wake up. You got to go to bed. And I'm in full uniform sitting in the chair with my guitar in hand. <laughs> and, and it was just one of those things where it was my way to decompress or just it's, it challenged my mind in a different way. And, and so it was always there, but it wasn't until... I actually had recorded a song and released it that I was like, maybe this could be something I actually do for my life. Huh. Did you always have more confidence in, in yourself as a musician than you did in baseball? Or did the, hmm. did the uh, doubts about baseball start in college? Or Yeah, I think it was, it was definitely college where the, where the doubts began. I also, there was a point in high school where, because in New York, there's not, the same attitude as you have in Florida where in your, when you're good in eighth grade, you're going, wow, I'm going to play at Florida State or I'm mm-hmm. going to be drafted. It was kind of like, wow, this guy's really good. That's great. Maybe he'll play on his high school team. Maybe he'll start <laughs> on varsity. Um, and then uh, eventually, I guess it was my, the summer of my junior year when college coaches are allowed to reach out to you. And I'm getting just phone call after phone call from division one coaches. I'm like, wow, I must be pretty good. (laughs) So there was this kind of, you know, being present and being, you know, and just enjoying playing baseball and, and enjoying winning and, and getting people out. Um, that then turned when I went to college to, Oh, this might actually be something. And if I don't do well, maybe I won't go as far as I could, which was eventually detrimental to, my actual performance. Mm-hmm. It's, so when, uh, up until that junior year, you were probably just playing to play the game and then it got, became a business. Exactly. And then when I went to Florida and I had taken that weight off of, you know what, maybe this is my last year. Maybe, maybe professional baseball isn't going to work out. Um, obviously with professional help, um, it was just so much more enjoyable. And it, it, I, I pitched way less than I did in my first three years. I, you know, I, I was, kind of like the last man on the totem pole in the bullpen, but it was so much more enjoyable to just stay there and, and play baseball and mm-hmm. just go. And then it helped me get my next opportunity in, in professional ball. You know, I never played baseball, but it does seem like, uh, particularly with a pitcher, uh, that position would get a lot tougher if you didn't think you were the man every time you stepped you out to. there. It's kind of yes. like, like being a defensive back in football. You better think you're you're the man out there on the field or, or you're not going to be able to cover those receivers. And I bet it's a lot of the same with a pitcher. Exactly. And, and I'm sure as a defensive back, if you have one, mi- one minuscule of hesitation, it's over. Mm-hmm. And for, for me as a pitcher, it was one extra thought that would, ha- that would come in as I'm doing my windup that would just take enough off of my natural athleticism um, to make, you know, make the ball go where I didn't want it to go or to go slower than I want it to go. And, um, you know, when you learn to control that, it can be a lot more fun to just play. Yeah. So when it's, it's interesting to kind of think about like the competitive battle of, of playing baseball, because, you know, you're, you're facing another team. Uh, you got your, your players that, that got your back, but as a pitcher, having that, that battle of, uh, confidence, right. Leads to bad innings, bad games, bad things like that. 
how does that competitive nature bleed over into the music part of what you're doing now? Well, there is definitely a comparison with the movement, like teaching yourself how to do something. And, and you know, if there's a certain lick that I really want to want to hit on the guitar that, it, you know, I can, I can really sit down and, and make myself learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like the competitiveness, it's this, you're, you're now competing against the song and you're going, yeah. okay, can I, what can I do to really make this hit the way that I want it to, whether it's with a guitar solo, whether it's a vocal note, whether it's sitting down and going, okay, I'm listening to a live version and oh, why did I do that instead of this? And, and you, you're, it's almost like look, looking at your video or your, your pitch sequencing from a, a baseball game and going, wow, you know, what was I thinking there and how could I have done this better? And so there's, there's this kind of analytical side that I definitely have held on to from the, from the baseball that I think definitely helps with creating arrangements, with writing a song, with looking at lyrics and going, how can I really compete against mediocre songs mm-hmm. or bad songs to make this something that will hit someone in the gut and make them cry at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to ice your elbow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> let's, that, uh, let's, let's do a tune. Oh, I got one more question All to right. follow up on that. That, that uh, the confidence level that you have as, as a pitcher and losing that and kind of comes and goes, does that come with your songwriting process? Are there times where you go, uh, where you're putting something out and you just... I don't know, don't feel or don't have that confidence level or you feel shaky about what you're doing. You know, because there's, in a game, you can always, that can happen a million times. In a season, it can happen 10 million times. You know, you're going on these runs and making these records and, um, you know, like we were talking to Dusty last night and it's not always easy. It's not always uh, the, the, you know, four seasons and things like that. So does, does the grind... Number one, are they similar? But like internally, your thought process on it, like it, does it feel the same? Is there like confidence wanes? Is there times where you're like, dude, this is, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I mean, it, absolutely. Yeah. I, so one thing that is kind of fun is that for baseball, there were times where it really felt like a grind. For music, it doesn't feel as much like a grind, yeah. even with the the same confidence waning. And I think because I already went through the grind. I already uh-huh. had those moments of like, I'm worthless and, and all this stuff. And and I have those moments, but they're much shallower. So uh-huh. if we're going up and down in the, you know, the roller coaster of of confidence, it's a much smoother ride. And I was I was talking to my wife about it and she's an amazing partner in terms of keep and <laughs> everything, but in terms of keeping me keeping those peaks and valleys a little bit closer together. So when I released a single recently, I, I said to her, I was like, I don't know if, are people liking this? It's, karaoke in Koreatown? Karaoke in Koreatown. I like it. And, and it's, a, it's a very <laughs> personal song to me and, and to the, my, our friends that it's about. And I, and I just keep reminding myself, it's not about who's listening or how many streams I have or how many Spotify followers. And then, you know, 10 minutes later you go, man, Scott T. Smith has a lot of of Spotify followers. And this is one of my good friends in the the, the music world. Um, And then you come back and you go, it's not about them. It's about James and Rachel, who the song's about. And and so there's there's total peaks and valleys, waning, confidence waning and coming and going. It's like, it's it's the same, but I think I'm more equipped to handle it than I was in college playing baseball. Yeah. Nice setup, awesome. guys. Let's go. <laughs> let's go with that for the first song we listen to. All right. Tell us about. Uh, tell us about karaoke in Koreatown. All right. So, so this in, incorporates everything. This is music and baseball. My best friend from Little League is is my friend James, and it, we go back so far. I don't even know when we actually met. And Rachel is my wife's best friend from her first day of college. Um, and so, we, you know, they had met a few times here and there, but they there was never any any spark or anything like that. Um, and one time at one of our friend's birthday parties, which was at an underground karaoke bar in Koreatown, Manhattan, which is like just so much fun and so crappy. <laughs> like you're on like these leather couches and, you know, the floor is sticky and um, you just kind of basically rent out a room for a couple hours, kind of like you would a bowling lane. Um, 
and you go to town. <laughs> There's a, you know, you, mm-hmm. you just have, have a blast. Um, and so we're in this karaoke bar and this was, a, I think about three years ago, three or four years ago. And James and Rachel are sitting on the couch and they're kind of like, you know, cozying up with each other, flirting. And Melissa and I are elbowing each other going like, I don't know if this is a great idea. Like, you know, <laughs> Rachel had just gotten out of a long relationship. James was still kind of, you know, not sure what he was doing with his life. He was working at a, a local deli. And, um, and we were like, is this a good idea for either of them? And so the night goes on and we're just singing. And I think they sang, uh, since you've been gone by Kelly Clarkson, it's a very <laughs> difficult song to sing. So yeah. it's, you know, they're not, not starting with the easy one. Um, and then we finished the night we're at McDonald's and my wife snaps a picture of them and goes, this is kind of, this looks kind of real. I don't know. I don't know why she did that. It was kind of, kind of interesting. And it became the cover of the album. That's them. Okay. Because a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> They got married. So it was a happy ending for all. Um, and so this was a little like, it was kind of a, a funny little song that I, that I wrote on, you know, you know, on a whim. And I played it for them once and they were crying. And I was like, why are you crying? This is like, a, this is just a funny little song. They're like, that's our story. This is, uh, this is how yeah. we met. And, um, and so I, I've played it with my band. I've, I've done a bunch of demos with horn sections and everything. And talking to them and they were like, no, the, the thing is that it's a funny little song. It's a little acoustic demo. And then I sent that to them and they were like, it, you know, I was like, I'm not releasing that demo. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that, is a, that is not my best performance. Um, but they were like, you know, if you could record something that's as close to that demo, that would be great. Oh, and so I released awesome it on the, on the Thursday before their wedding. Oh, dude. Perfect. You know, another interesting fact is that uh, karaoke is Korean for saying drunkenly. Is it? No. <laughs> Fresh off the breakup, no need for makeup. The microwave is beeping so loud. Her lasagna's a little frozen in the middle. It's too late, she's gotta scarf it all down. He's done at the deli, his apron is smelly. He burns the road to cash the train. Odorizing driver Well he was none the wiser To the magic that the night would contain Let's fall in love Where they never turn the music down A room full of drunk buffoons Karaoke in Koreatown We're flipping through the songbook Can't believe how it looks Body language sings like Adele Hips and shoulders pressing While fake usher is confessing It's looking like it's all going well Cheap liquor pouring The last song was boring Maybe they should go take a turn They picked out a winner And sang for their dinner I feel like I know James and Rachel now. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Feeling some of that John Prine sense of humor a little bit. I love it, man. Yeah, yeah. I love it. We need it in uh, the world these days. There's not yeah. enough and he's gone. So, yeah, yeah, man. And I, like I said earlier, dude, it's a picture painter, uh, which you have a really, really good grasp on. And we were kind of, you know, skimming over the bio earlier and it said that you were, uh, grew up listening to Springsteen. And what was the other one? Uh, come on, Z- come on. Zeppelin and uh, nope. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, there it was. Stevie Ray Vaughan, yeah. Springsteen. And I definitely can hear the uh, the influence in, in the lyrics because, man, it's you have a lot of people that can write and, and get the vision to you, but there are certain times where it's, you're following a story 
you can see somebody scrambling to get on the subway. You can see those things mm-hmm. in your mind and it's just, you know, the cold lasagna. The, the little details and stuff like that, which, uh, you know... And it's universal enough that everybody can relate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? 100%. It's, it's not something that somebody's not going to connect to in some way. Yeah. Right. Thank Speaking you. Speaking of that, like, when did you... You remember when you first started thinking about, and hey, you know, I'm gonna write my own songs, and how how did you get into the songwriting piece of it? The the, the songwriting is still, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I I think I wrote my first instrumental song as a freshman in high school. It was one of those mm-hmm. things where I had I had tuned my guitar to open G tuning to learn some Zeppelin tune, and. Um, and I was like, yo, these are kind of some weird chords and and this sounds new and fresh. And so I held on to that for a while. And then like, you know, 15 years later, I actually put lyrics to it. Um, <laughs> but I think it was in college. I started writing some, you know, kind of pop rock kind of, kind of tunes that didn't really say a whole lot. Um, and then my college girlfriend at the time, her brother introduced me to the Avett brothers and John oh, Prine. Yeah. And being in New York, you don't hear that stuff on the radio. It's, you know, I was listening to Amos Lee and Bruce Springsteen at that time, but not, not these guys. And when I heard some of their songs and, and the words themselves are very plain, very digestible, very easy to get on the, just the first listen. Mm-hmm. But I'm also going, wow, I feel something <laughs> in my heart, in my <laughs> stomach. Like, you know, I, this is this is not like my poetry class where they're, you know, I'm trying to decide what the first line means. Um, you know, throughout those, studying those songs, I said, you know what? I can write little stories that tell big stories. Mm-hmm. So my, it's not the, you know, that I'm preaching some sort of message. It's that I'm telling a story about humans, about real life, about my friends, about me, about my wife, my family. And those are relatable. And like Brad, you were saying about the details. One thing I I learned, and this was kind of like a little like, you know, a little trick from John Prine was that the details are replaceable. If you, if you give someone's name, it doesn't make it less universal. It almost makes it easier to... To replace because if mm. you know someone named Donald or Lydia or someone who has that story, you go, wow, I'm just going to, I'm trying to insert that name of that person that I'm familiar mm. with. And now this song is one of my songs. <laughs> now, now it belongs to me. Yeah. It's not a John Prine song. Awesome. Yeah. Are, are all your songs that you write or, or the majority of them, are, are they based on something in your life? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and during... Um, during the first COVID lockdown, the, all of those songs were so miserable <laughs> that, that I started. I started looking back towards you know some of like the experiences of of my friends and family prior to that, um, and then I also started saying, okay, well, I've got all this time now. Let me let me investigate some of the people that I haven't investigated yet. So I have a couple songs about that. They're still kind of in the works, not necessarily complete, but, um, about old teammates of mine, about, you know, just people you passed in a gas station that (laughs) that you thought about or, um, so, so there's, there's an element of, yes, these are real people. The stories might not be entirely true. Yeah. Don't have to be. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) So the vast majority are, are pretty much based in reality. Yeah. You mentioned a poetry class. Um, you took a poetry class in college, I'm assuming. I think so. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I'm the son of an English teacher. My mom ah. was an English teacher for 35 years, so it was always, you know, any any assignment that had to do with poetry. I'm like, mom, I don't get this. <laughs> Can you help me? And and it was it was just a lot of work to break it down. Yeah, because I was yeah. that was kind of the uh, question: is is poetry is such a broad? You know, you're trying to paint an emotion. It seems like more than a picture in in a lot of ways sometimes mm. i don't know i guess it can range in absolutely a, yeah a million different ways it just seems like a or watch what you're saying his mom's going to analyze your <laughs> thoughts here poetry, um, poetry is great yeah <laughs> <laughs> we love it um but no and, and with music you get you get the the sound to help you with the emotion so i i there they are totally different and yeah. you're gonna you're gonna have you know the the benefit of oh i need a a pedal steel guitar in here and now now everybody's sad instead of using words to do it yeah um 
So I think there's there's definitely a connection, but it's not not entirely the same. I also wonder, uh, considering the connection with your mother and uh, any po- you know, I my my lyric writing started as poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know I was just writing these you know miserable t- uh, high school things, <laughs> uh, but I wonder if there is a correlation between your mother being an English teacher, having uh, that type of I don't know education or just that type of. Uh, material around that where you see it if that correlated into your writing even without you kind of knowing it absolutely and and both of my sisters i'm the middle of of three and both of my sisters are also writers so oh, really? okay. she's, she's definitely uh my mom had the influence no on, doubt um but it, it was always there was always a very clear objective to communicate. And that's, that's uh-huh. all that writing is. And so whether it was an essay that I'm working on or sometimes even songs now, if I, I bring it to my mom or my sisters or Melissa, my wife, the, uh, the objective is what are you getting across and versus what are you trying to say? Cause, cause that's a good question. I'll finish the song and they go, what did you, what are you trying to say with this verse or this line? Um, and so from a very young age, probably since I started writing paragraphs and, elementary school, the idea was how do you structure a thought to get it across? Uh, when you play for a crowd that knows you and knows your music, mm-hmm. do you have a set set list? And I'll tell you why I'm asking that question. I'm sitting here thinking. <laughs> do you? For a crowd that knows me, I will have a set list written and I will 100% ignore it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, as, I, as I listen to your songs, you know, yeah. we, we've been listening to your songs. I could see people are going to connect strongly to one of your songs or another. And I bet when people know your music, I bet you get a lot of requests. Yes. I I appreciate that. And that's, that's one of those things. And and I've been very lucky. I play all the time, especially at home. Um, You see these people and you go, well, this is kind of your story. Even if it's not necessarily about them, they go, oh, I love that one. Or I love this one. And, and you know what to pull out when that person shows up. And that's going back to the baseball versus music in terms of how many people want you to fail mm-hmm. versus how many people want you to do well. Like, I am trying to give them a great night, you know, versus when I'm playing baseball, I'm trying to give myself a great night. Ah, here's the, here's the analogy. <laughs> you went from trying to strike people out to throwing up meatballs because exactly. you want everybody to have <laughs> exactly. home runs that night. Which I've done plenty of. <laughs> <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, in terms of writing a set list for a new crowd, my idea is, and this is something I learned from Jim Avett of the father of the Avett brothers. He said, you want the people to leave your show feeling like they've seen a thing, that they've seen an experience, a show, that it's not just a bunch of songs in a row. And so one of the things I do when I'm writing a set list is kind of like you think about my mom working out with me on an essay is I want a thesis statement within the first two songs. And then I want a conclusion that ties to the thesis statement in my last two songs in the middle. It's a free for all. It could be, it could be whatever. It doesn't have to necessarily tie to the theme, but when people leave and they go, wow, he really, he called back to what he said when he, what he was going to do when he started playing that, Mm. you know, we're going to talk about this or we're going to talk about this. And, you know, and, um, and that set list can be very different depending on how many people have seen me before, where I am, what, um, what I'm feeling that night, all that stuff can factor into what I'm playing at any given moment. Yeah. So, uh, when you're like this run where you go and it's, it's you and a guitar, uh, I would imagine, you know, even with, there are some people that, that can put a band behind them. And it definitely creates the full sound, especially on a recording. But um, sometimes when you see them solo versus you see them with a group, there's something about the solo performance with the guitar where you really connect, lean in. It's super intimate. Do you find a difference in those shows? Do you find this run, like, you know, you're playing the show in front of 30 or 40 in this house. Do you think that that connection you made will carry over more so than if you were playing on a big stage with a full band? And and how do you feel like those performances and shows are different for you? Yeah, the the ability to just tell a story is amazing. And to say this is going to be, say it's a, you know, hour and 10 minutes of of music. um, I can take 
20 minutes of that time to introduce the songs, to tell them what's going to happen, what they're going to hear, what, what they should be thinking about as they're listening. So it makes it totally, it, it goes into their ears and then into their bellies in a much different way mm -hmm. than if we're just rocking out with the band, which some people do. And that's, and that is fine. And I, and it's a way for me to connect with people too. Cause um, you know, I love being Stevie Ray Vaughan for a minute and, and, and you know, ripping on the electric guitar and, and keeping a crowd going. Um, and that to me goes to their feet <laughs> versus, you know, going to their bellies. And, and so it depends on the, um, on the crowd. I've done a lot of, um, smaller gigs with the band too, where there's an upright bass and a cajon. Ooh. And that is kind of a, a good middle ground where, you know, the drummer's not getting antsy. And he's going, oh, cool. Dan's talking about this song again for five minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, you, you know, the set list will be a little bit different. Um, you know, we, we, we like to rock out. And when we've got the band, that's what we're going to do. And when we're, when I'm playing solo, I still try to rock out as best I can, but it allows me to feel like I'm just kind of sitting on your couch. It's a lot harder to make a, a, a band feel like they're sitting on your couch in your living room playing you a song. Yeah. Do, do you feel like the, um, there, there's more of a, like an emotional roller coaster that you can create when you're solo and it's just you and uh, you can kind of do your own deal. Absolutely. There's, yeah, because there's that energy that comes with a band that is much harder to control yeah, <laughs> as, yeah. as the, the front man. Um, you know, you, you're really controlling that with the set list and, and then you're trying to read the audience at the same time yeah. and see where are we going with this next one. And, and that's why my bass player, Al, who's phenomenal, I love him. He's like, why do we even have a set list? <laughs> He's like, I said, can you print it? I, I left one day for a gig and, and I said, I didn't have the set list. And he, I said, can you print it out? He goes, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, makes me, it makes me feel good. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's the, the songs you write though. I guess, I mean, that's, you're doing the solo shows and, and, and you're doing, doing house shows. That's part of the performance, you know, and that's a, that's a, that's a skill to hone mm -hmm. setting up the song and telling the story of the song and, and and doing that in a way that keeps the performance flowing. Absolutely. And that was when I first started music full, or trying to be full-time as a musician, which I'm still not because I'm coaching baseball. Mm -hmm. But um, I was playing these, these 11 o'clock gigs in New York City in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it would be the sound engineer and Melissa in the crowd. <laughs> and And I'm still going, I'm trying to pretend like they're... 50 people there that I'm explaining this song to. And then on the, the subway ride back to Melissa's apartment at the time, she would say, Hey, you know, I made a couple notes in my phone about this and this and, and how you introduced this. And, um, I've just, it's, it's a skill that I'm continuing to hone. I'm Scott Smith and I were in the car for seven hours yesterday. It was something we talked about at length. And it's, it's, you're always trying to see how can I make this song, this performance, this entire night, hit someone a little bit harder than it would have last time. So you and Scott did a house show yesterday. Do you play a lot of private house shows? Yes, I try to. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's one of those things that um, in New York, especially people just don't know about. They, they don't, they think you're coming over to my house. We're going to have a party. And, and, and I do those too. <laughs> you know, <it's>, sometimes <laughs> you have to, um, but I, I'm trying to educate my network in New York about these shows because they're very simple to throw. You don't need to put out an entire charcuterie table for, mm. for 40 people. You don't need to have 40 people. It could yeah. be 10 or 15 or eight. I've played house shows for eight people that are amazing shows. Um, and to me, it's the way that music should be played. You show up, you're relaxed. The, the family's relaxed. Scott and I were saying, you know, there were probably 10 people at that show that were in their neighborhood. And if they had to get in the car and figure out childcare and think about, okay, well, there's going to be a cover charge and it's going to be a two drink minimum and, and all of this stuff. Those people are now not at the show. Mm -hmm. So trying to increase my house show roster is, is probably my main goal for the, the next couple of years. Mm. It's a great environment. Yeah. 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 It, so it seems will, like a win-win across the board for, for all, 100%. everyone there. Yeah. So when you and Scott do these shows uh what's the structure are you each doing a set or do you, are you all performing as a duo what's it look like so we each do a set but we can't keep away from each other <laughs> so, so so he called me up for one of his songs i called him up for i think two of mine and then we finished this was this was what, what's so great and this is how 
house shows are different than a venue show. If we had played, let's say our set was, you know, eight to 10 or eight to 11 at 11 o'clock, we got to get off that stage here. The, the family was great. They had an amazing house. We got to, we were staying with them. So after our sets, some people leave, they're like, Oh, this was a great show. Thanks so much. And they head home and there were a few people hanging out and Scott and I sit on the couch completely unplugged and we're taking requests. We're playing songs that we thought we should play at that time. And, and it just, it feels like you're sitting there with the crowd creating a good night for everyone, mm. not just you, not yeah. just trying to get your name out there. This is like, we're going to, we're going to be here <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to really be here. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And you got people, you got music lovers that want to hear music. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. So, so you get to hear what's going on. Well, exactly. we've we've uh, definitely seen here the difference in what a crowd looks like that is there to watch music or there just to be out and about. It's hard when you're a music lover to be somewhere where the people right behind you are talking during the whole performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And, and other than, you know, a house show or, or the monarch here or some places like that, you, you don't get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at many places. So right. for the artists in particular, it's such a valuable, valuable venue and, and, and setting to have totally. people that are just dialed in yes. and that are invested and in what you're and doing. And it's needed because, you know, you can yeah. understand the other side too. You know, when, when people get to get out and at a bar or yeah. something and it's very social and you want to talk to your friends right. and you want, you know, right. so I, I understand that. It's Absolutely. not, it's, it's something that's going to happen, totally. which makes house shows and listening rooms Right. Something that's definitely needed. Yeah. Exactly. You know. And some of those bars are, are better for the band too. Yeah. yeah. You, you can say, okay, these people are here to to move. So mm-hmm. so let's bring the band in. Let's bring the and, band in. And, and let's let's rock out. Yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll mix in some more covers and, and things like that to grab people's attention with volume and energy yeah. versus content. And and that's that's where some like in, in my area, there is a huge, huge population of Grateful Dead cover bands. And they crush it. And then people go and they go, we're going to like, we're just going to vibe for four and a half hours. You know? Bring us back. Bring us back. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's, it's fun because you know, you're, you're, it's kind of, it's not, I don't want to say it's a wrestling match because it's, you're not fighting anyone, but it's, it's like this, this awesome challenge. You go, how, how am I going to get at least one fan out of tonight? Yeah. You know, whether it's at a bar or a house concert or, you know, wherever wherever you're playing. Yeah. Let's All listen right. to another tune. All right, let's listen to another. Tell us about Without Fruit. Without Fruit. So this is going back to poetry. Uh, during that first COVID lockdown, I was taking a master class, like, like on the app okay. sort of thing. I'm sure you've seen some oh, yeah. of the ads on Facebook and whatever. And I said, you know what? I'm a musician. I'm a lyricist. I should know something about poetry. <laughs> this would be a little different than high school. Um, and I took Billy Collins' masterclass and he was the poet laureate of the United States and immediately he spoke to me because he he's like poetry's not overwhelming it's not intimidating it's just words so he said one of the things he likes to do is make his first stanza very plain very digestible very easy and then almost like a river or a lazy river you're taking the listener on a journey that's slightly getting deeper and you're slightly getting I think he said it's the subject you find versus the subject you eventually discover so you you know you the first stanza is very easy to to hear the second stanza gets a little bit more and then the third you're like oh this is what the song is about mm. and, and so this is what I tried to do with this song with the three different verses and I, I played it for my mom and I told her that story. And she goes, oh, Billy Collins. He was my professor in college. No <laughs> so, and, and she loved him and said, you know, this is like, this is something that is missing, I think, from a lot of people's poetry education is that you can, you can take the listener or the reader on a journey. And um, for this one, it, it was about those days of social distancing in the backyard at my parents' house when we didn't know what was happening, how long it was going to be. And um, and it just kind of follows my my thought process sitting in the backyard at my parents' house. Uh, we got to listen to the whole thing now. Right, we got to take the whole journey. We got to get to the third. Uh, yeah, we can't we can't stop the journey, man. Boy. <laughs> See how I did that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, without fruit. Without 
mosquitoes bite my legs in this Adirondack chair. Cicadas sing their songs through the cooling August air. So slow A pine cone falls to me It sparks this little note A tree grows fine without fruit But a tree can't grow on
place. Thank you. Where did you record these songs? These were done at the Loft Recording Studios in Bronxville. So my, my bass player, Al, has owned that studio forever. And it's, uh, it's just a very familiar, cozy place. I love it. Yeah. And he's, he's worked with like, like he, he, it's so funny because he'll do something like that, but he's worked with Rihanna. He did, he mixed Pwn to Replay. He's what? like, yeah, like <laughs> wow. it was like yeah. one of those, one of those places where it's like, you look in and you go, it's a little bit messy, but you know, Rod Stewart's been there and, and all oh. the pop stars oh, from, wow. that would yeah. come up from New York City. It's a, it's a quick train ride from New York City. So it's, um, it's a really special place. There's a lot of, a lot of. Fun, uh, fun history to it. Oh, man. So does he engineer and mix and he engineers, and mix and plays the bass at all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah. What a connection, man! Yeah. No, it's great. We and we have a, a great relationship. And he's he's an older guy, and and so having him as a mentor, and and he's helping me learn how to record at home. He's helping me with song structures and and things like that. He's just. Just a great resource for me to have sounds, and a great friend. Sounds like you got a great support group, you know, yeah. between your wife and your sisters yeah. and your yeah. mom and... Totally. And, and, and my drummer is... My, who's my drummer in high school? We were in a, uh, an alt-rock band and and I was like, I was going to record some songs and, you know, I know James. <laughs> so so <laughs> let's, uh, let's uh, give him a call and see if he's down to play some gigs. James from James and Rachel? A different James. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little confusing, Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, for our listeners that, that want to follow you a little more closely and get to know your music better, know you better, where, where can they find you? Uh, Danslotnick.com. That's Z-L-O-T-N-I-C-K. The C is very important or else you'll find a Mexican composer named Dan Zlotnick, <laughs> who, is, uh, <laughs> who we've been confused for each other many times. We've been tagged in a million posts. Um, DanSlotnick.com. I, I would not have thought Mexican. Slotnick is I would Mexican. not have I thought know. Mexican composer. I know, I know. But I've, I've, I've gotten emails in Spanish asking me to score their films. I'm like, do you want folk rock, acoustic kind of stuff? I'm happy to do it, but I don't think that's what you want. Um, but yeah, all my handles are just at Dan Zlotnick, Instagram, Facebook, I think is Dan Zlotnick Music, but I'm, I'm pretty easy to find as long as you spell it right. Z Lot Nick. That's how you spell it. Yeah, yeah it is. L-O-T-N-S-E-K. Yeah. Not nearly as hard as it sounds. No. Z yeah. Lot. Yeah. You just got to get used to it. You got to come to a show. You got to, you know, yeah. Yeah. all there that fun stuff. <laughs> if you want him for a house show, he's available. Heck oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, right, man. man, enjoy your wedding. Thank you so much. It's going to be fun. We're <laughs> going to have wedding. a blast. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. We're going to go you. out with... Uh, I'm not leaving. And man, Ooh. man, this one hits. Ooh, let's yeah. make it. Tell us the story behind this one. So this was um, when I was at the University of Tampa. I became friends with this girl, Nicole. Uh, I think Nikki, actually, she's, she goes by. But um, we weren't necessarily all that close. But during this pandemic time, she had posted a picture of her father who had received a heart transplant. And her father got to meet the mother of the donor. And there are these unbelievably emotional pictures of the mom with her hand on a stethoscope on his chest. Mm, listening, I think I've seen this. Listening to was it? Did her, that go heartbeat. viral? I don't think so. Really? I, I, I have seen okay. other instances of this going viral, but it's one of those things that you just can't unsee. And um, I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it. And in the post, in the the text of the post, she's explaining that they were talking about all the things that her son wanted to do and how they kind of were creating a little bit of a bucket list for her dad huh. to kind of carry wow. the heart around and, and fulfill some of these things. And obviously it's this incredibly emotional post from someone. It's just an acquaintance. This is not a close friend of mine. I didn't know this story until I saw this. And I wrote this song pretty much in one shot. It was one of those things where I played it for Melissa and she goes, the only advice I have is that you have to send it to them and make sure this is okay, that, that you're going to put this out there because it's their story. And so I sent it to Nikki. I was like, hey, this is totally random. I haven't talked to you in five years. Um, but I wrote this song after seeing your post. And she said, it's, she, they loved it. They were all in tears. And they were like, you have to release it. And, uh, and that to me was like such a blessing. It almost felt like now I'm, I'm releasing a cover song because this isn't even my story. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I had changed names and, and some details and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, 
But then through that, and I'm in a, an Avett Brothers fan group on Facebook, and through that group, there was another woman who was receiving a heart and liver transplant at the same time at Vanderbilt Hospital. And it came, like someone connected us like a week before I had released the song. And so it was all mixed and mastered and everything. And I sent it to her and she played it for her doctors at Vanderbilt Hospital, like the doctors mm. and nurses. And I'm like, reading these messages, bawling my eyes out, going, this is, <laughs> yeah. this is, a, this is a crazy, crazy thing. And, and every time I play it, there's something that happens. Someone has a story similar. And I, it was one of those things that I, it's the, the transplant thing has never been a part of my life, you know, knock wood. Um, and, you know, my close friends and family. And, and I didn't realize how many people would connect with this song on very deep levels for whatever reason. So... It's, a, uh, it's do, very special. Do you ever consider that of all the places that that mother was telling her, her, you know, the the uh, recipient that that guy wanted to go, that she would ever think that it would end up everywhere because of this song? Because that's what happened. I mean, yeah. everybody will that hears this knows who that knows that story through this now. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't have wow. to be close to a transplant to feel it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, that to me was, you know, the, if the later you get in the song, the more of me comes out, and you go, okay, this is, this is me questioning mortality and what happens after death, and and what it means to be a part of a community and and have friends and family, and you know, like we're all gonna die at some point, and this is kind of my way of of handling that. You know, even at the end of. The, the recipient's life, that heart will stop beating, but the song will be here forever. Mm. So yep. she has got a gift that, that'll be here forever, man. Nobody will so forget much. that kid. I really appreciate that. Thank Amazing. You. Thanks again, Dan, for being with us, man. Thank you so much. I'm not leaving. Sun's heart beating in the chest of another man. The accident took Jackson, but gave this man a second chance. She bowed her head a moment. From the weight of the memory of the last thing Jackson told her as he faded soft and sweet. I'm not leaving you behind. I'm not leaving you at all She picked her head up slowly Can I ask a favor of you? Can you go to see the Badlands? always wanted to He said ma'am I would be on her More than you'll ever know I will bring him to Dakota And everywhere I ever go
almost ten years later The man said his goodbyes And his body turned to soil Sending roses to the sky A young girl picked a yellow one In her best cursive And sit together through the end